Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm here with my colleague Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. We are here as ever to tell you about all that's new on Rocks Back Pages, including an audio interview with ABC from 1985. ABC is starting a tour on April the 7th, and they talk to Ira Robbins in this interview about Trevor Horn, Lexicon of Love, and all kinds of other things. Mark will be telling us about the highlights of everything that's new in the library, great new pieces on Mick Jagger and Anne Briggs and a review of David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. But first, I'm really, really delighted to welcome and introduce our special guest, Keith Altham. Yo, Barney. <laughs> does, he, does he go? Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. And him. And him. <laughs> Keith, it's, it's so lovely to have you here. Absolutely. And, you know, we adore you and revere you. And you've come specifically, but not exclusively, to talk about the late Scott Walker, who you interviewed many times for the New Musical Express and other publications. We will talk a little bit about the enemy in general and your friendships with everyone from the Stones to Jimi Hendrix. But I'm going to start by asking you a very simple question. When did you first meet Scott Walker and, of course, the Walker Brothers? I think it must have been in 1965 when I was on the NME. I was watching A Ready Steady Go on TV and I saw this clip that was shot by Michael Lindsay Hulk, I think. Oh, yeah. Of course. And it was very impressive. He'd shot from the ground up as if they were coming out of... looked like they were coming out of a flying saucer or something. <laughs> These three blonde Americans, you know, yes. more like surfers and pop stars at that stage. And they were singing Love Her. It was a yes. great sound, you know. It was kind yeah. of a pinch from... The Righteous Brothers and Phil Spector yeah, yeah. and all those sort of sunny bono stuff. That Which they continued with the various producers here, didn't they? they? They managed to get the nearest any English producers. Of- but they looked good and they sounded good. And when I heard Scott Walker open his mouth, I thought, that is a voice. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is a great voice. And that kind of led me to seeking out who was doing their management, mm-hmm. which turned out to be capable management, Morris King and Barry Clayman or incapable management, (laughs) like to to refer to them, incapable management. That sort of started my association with a string of interviews I did for the enemy. I interviewed him about 12 times. And much later, of course, at the end of his career with the Walker Brothers, when he went solo, I became his PR for a couple of years. So I was both poacher and gamekeeper. (laughs) So Scott died about three days before it was announced. Uh He died on the 22nd. Mm. And... There has been, as I'm sure you're aware, Keith, a massive kind of outpouring of of grief because probably has such an extraordinary career, such a remarkable kind of self-reinvention, a guy who started out in your era at that time, he was like a teen idol, wasn't he? He was this, you know, six-foot, blonde, good-looking Californian guy who then through a sort of series of extraordinary events, turned himself into this very radical avant-garde artist, a guy that gets written about in The Wire magazine and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. is celebrated by you know, everyone from kind of Mark Armand to, to Nick Cave to indeed probably Martin Fry of ABC, a sort of generation of younger bands and musicians for whom Scott could almost do no wrong. Uh, your 
in the unique position, you you knew him before he was probably even going to see Ingmar Bergman films. <laughs> when he was going to see Ingmar Bergman films. Well, because your pieces do, I mean, it make it very clear that he's different and he's really interested in the avant-garde. He's very interested in cinema and existentialism. He's the only pop star I can think of that read yeah. Jean-Paul Sartre. Exactly. And seemed to understand what existentialism actually was. Herman's I mean, Hermits didn't, did they? I mean, he was an extrovert in his own way, but there was an introvert struggling to get out. <laughs> and it, it was peculiar because there was this contradiction in terms the whole time with him when you talked to him, because he hated the whole idea of being a teenage idol, but he liked the idea of being successful, having recognition and being right. famous to a degree, as long as it wasn't specifically about how he looked, because he thought he looked peculiar. He really did. He really thought he was odd. Really? He used those words. Yeah, no, I mean, in the Dawn James interview we posted recently, he said exactly that. I had a thing about his appearance. Yeah. Did you like him? I did. I was very fond of him. Yeah. Mm. He was vulnerable. I mean, he he was a bit like a kind of melancholic cocker spaniel, you know. You couldn't be (laughs) nasty with Scott Walker, you know. You you want to pat him on the head the whole time. There, there, it'll be all right, Scott. I can remember one time when he was on that famous Jimi Hendrix tour that Hendrix used to refer to as that silly little tour he did with Cat Stevens and yes. uh, the Walker Brothers. And yes. I mean, Jimi Hendrix had a great phrase that he came up with when I was talking to him once uh, backstage, and I said, how's the tour going with mm. the Walker Brothers? You know, and he's, I said, are you getting on OK with Scott? He said, damn, Scott Walker. I can't wait for him to fall over and graze his knee so I can kiss it better. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's fantastic. And um, there was that element about yeah. Scott, you know, you felt you wanted to protect yeah. him. I mean, it's interesting you were saying how he changed from being this pop idol to being a serious artist. But reading it, I mean, having read a lot of, like, your interviews, Dawn James's mm. interviews and so on and so forth from that, that time, he always took himself pretty seriously as an artist. He always had a fairly clear notion that what he wanted to yes. do and was trying to do yeah. was serious he art. took his music seriously yes he took what he took his composition seriously yeah. he took his ideas of perfection in the recording studio seriously what he didn't take seriously mm-hmm. were the photographic yeah. images and the interviews mm-hmm. i mean all my interviews were fairly peripheral with him they were quite simple fun sort of sure that's the way he treated it you know yeah. he didn't treat it at all seriously after seeing Hendrix, I mean, he said to me on that same occasion, actually, backstage, uh, that I got that quote from Jimmy. He was looking in a mirror and clawing at his face, I can still remember it, saying, you know, I'm not good-looking Scott Walker. I'm odd-looking Scott Walker. Why do they keep telling me really? that I'm a photo, mm-hmm. you know, a pin-up and things, you know? Mm. This isn't what I want to do, mm-hmm. you know? You've heard Jimmy Hendrix, Keith. You know, you can hear what he's doing. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Right? And I want to do something that will be as kind of ground-shattering yeah. as what Hendrix is doing, but I can't play guitar, so I've got to find something else to do. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And that was his whole frustration, yeah. I think. I mean, it's very interesting that, that, that some of the interviews with him went just after the Walker Brothers had effectively broken up, and he was like... His management was sort of almost directing him into sort of like Friday Night at London Palladium, sort of. There's, there's a kind of contradiction again, because yeah. there was an attempt to move in. Into, well, you um, know, the ironic thing was that the person who desperately wanted to be a pop star mm-hmm. was John Walker. Is that right? Who actually, if you look at the photographs, was beautiful. I yes. mean, he was better looking than Scott. Mm-hmm. He was a kind of Charlton Heston of uh-huh. 
pop music. Yeah. And he desperately wanted that attention and that pin-up kind of image thing to go mm. that went with it. And, of course, he didn't get it because Scott had the voice. Yeah. Mm. And the kids latched on to yeah. the voice and the sound of his voice and the kind of melancholia that was there in that pitch. Rather, in some ways, I mean, he... He was born in the wrong era, era, Scott. He was kind of in that bridge between Sinatra and Morrissey, yes. if you like. You know? yeah. mm. If he'd have been able to, to have done what Morrissey did, it would have been a different number for yeah. him completely. Yeah. And he could have done it. And, and, but he was operating at a time when people like management record companies put you into your box, that's who you were meant yeah. to be, that's how you are presented. Well, of course, they were of an age where they kind of, like, empathised with their heroes, and their heroes were Sinatra and Bennett and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, Scott came from a, a situation where Eddie Fisher was the guy who championed him in America. Is that right? When he was still yeah. a kid, yeah. I mean, yeah. He, he, did, he had a series of TV shows lined yeah. up and then Fisher got snarled up with Elizabeth Taylor and, <laughs> and the whole thing <laughs> just <things> happened. imploded. <laughs> it I mean, happen. the stuff that nobody ever hears because they just don't bother listening to it, and it isn't terribly good, is the sort of late 50s kind of rock and roll stuff. That yeah. Scott Engel yeah, that was, was recording. He did, he did I mean, surfing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sub, sub Rick Nelson yeah. kind of material, yeah. really. But he did sing for Eddie Fisher. And one of the interviews, I don't, I can't remember if it's one of yours, I think it is, where he talks about singing for Eddie Fisher in Palm Springs. Yeah. And he was almost like being groomed for teen stardom in that very Hollywood sense. Mm-hmm. He was. And then but, the Beatles but, came on the scene and shook everything up. That's well, what happened. Well, that's what happened. Yeah, yeah. But also, just temperamentally, he talks about really militating against that idea of sort of the Californian surfer boy. Uh, yeah. He didn't want yeah, to no. be that archetype. I mean, he was actually born in Ohio, but came with his, with his mother very early in life. So in, in, on the surface of things, he was a sort of classic California boy. But as you, I think, rather brilliantly put it, there was an introvert struggling to get out. So they moved to London and... He adopts London, and London adopts him, and he becomes very much a part of the scene here. Falls in love with that whole kind of left-bank, sort of Gorwas existentialist thing, and, and makes these four extraordinary solo albums that really you can't compare to anything else anyone was doing in that era. It's such a sort of refusal to do what's expected of him as a pop star. Yeah, it's very and you much... Wrote, and you wrote liner notes for... At least two of them, I believe. Wrote liner notes for four of them. For all four of them, you wrote the no, liner notes. No, no I wrote liner notes for Scott. One notes for Portrait, which was the Walker Brothers album. Right. And a liner notes for Scott Three. That isn't the, the most allegedly the most pretentious liner notes ever written. In How kind of you to say so? <laughs> <laughs> we have a piece. We have a piece by Ian McDonald uh, reviewing many years later. I think in, t- in two thousand, he writes about those four albums, reevaluates them and tries to make sense of them. And I think he calls your line of notes, he uses a double negative, not entirely unironic. (laughs) (laughs) He obviously caught my underlying theme, yeah. It was, I don't know, the problem with writing line of notes in those days was that you had to really adopt a kind of fan-like persona when you wrote them, so it became... Somewhat pretentious, to say the least. That poem was magnificent. 
Yes. <laughs> Annie Nightingale once Scott read Trees? these out yeah. on BBC Two live. I thanked her for it for years. <laughs> it was the most toe-clenchingly embarrassing time of my life. The whole liner note actually should have gone into Sued's Corner in private eye. <laughs> well, we're going to spare not... you the torture of hearing, hearing them read out here today, but we should really should make them available on Rockspot Pages. <laughs> One point is that it's interesting two of the people you're most associated with, Scott Walker and Jimi Hendrix, are both people who came from America and essentially made London, at least for a period, in Jimmy's case, their home, yeah. which was a pretty uncommon thing. I mean, I can, I can see that the Walker brothers... It was becoming less common. Do you know why it was becoming less common? Because young people were trying to dodge the draft in America, uh-huh. and the Walker brothers were a part of that. Yeah, it was kept right? quite hush-hush. There's a okay. great story about Scott Dodgy. years later in the 80s when he phoned up his manager and said... Uh, Oh, I've got a problem, man. Um, <laughs> he always attacked man on the end of every sentence. <laughs> problem, man. My mother's ill and I need to go home. This was like in 1990, something like that. OK. And his, and his manager said, yes, yeah, Scott, fine. I mean, what's the problem? Do you need some money? I'll happily advance you some money. No, man, it's the draft. You left the door open? No, the, the <laughs> military draft, man. You know, because if we go back, when we came over, we were trying to dodge the draft. And if I go back, they'll induct me again into the armed force. Scott, Jimmy Carter issued a pardon to everybody 15 years ago. <laughs> really? Oh, oh, really, man? Bummer. <laughs> wow. Uh, he so didn't know. That's, that's fantastic. Well, I, I suppose that makes some sense because he did become such a recluse. And I think it's just sort of worth mentioning at this point that a lot of the writing about Scott Walker in the last week or so has, has been about the much more experimental stuff. I mean, something is really, really out there. And so we have a piece by the late Richard Cook when Climate of Hunter comes out, mm-hmm. which is 1984. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's expecting, like, the sun ain't going to shine anymore, <laughs> or even Big Louise, was, was sort of really astonished by this. <laughs> Except the hardcore Scott fans who knew about these four famous tracks on the Night Flights album. Yeah. And that's 1978, where... Scott smuggles these very dark, strange songs onto this Walker Brothers album. And anyone who's listening, and there were a lot of people who, who were listening, would say they were like mid-year claims it was a, they were a huge influence. So The Electrician's probably the most famous of the four. Fat Mama Kick and uh, Shut Out, uh, two of the others. And they are extraordinary. And Climate of Hunter, 1984... There's a long gap, there's six years of silence, essentially. So Richard is talking to him when Climate of Hunter comes out. And from that moment on, Scott Walker becomes the absolute darling of the sort of avant-garde crowd. And he's on the cover of The Wire. And then, you know, all these years later, he's making almost unlistable records, which involve thwacking... Great sides, carcasses of, of meat. <laughs> I mean, anyone who's seen the 30th Century Man documentary, again, trying to connect that yeah. guy to the guy who came over in, in 64, 65, mm. it seems like a real Except disconnect. Except if you knew him and you knew, you knew what right. his interests were outside that of the Walker Brothers. Yeah. You, know, you knew that his, he was a very literate and a very... Uh, artistically motivated. I mean, somebody whose first outing when he got mm. to London would be straight down to the art galleries and the museums, yeah, yeah, you know. Sure. And he, 
he always said to me, he said, you know, when I came to England, he said, I had a, an American impression of what England would be like mm. from watching old black and white movies of, mm. like, Dirk Bogart and mm. things like that. And when I got here in the middle of winter, it was exactly like that. Yes. There was snow <laughs> on the ground. Yes. And everything was black and white, miserable. And it stayed with me. Yes. And yes. my songs, in some respects, some of my early stro- songs, like Montague Terrace and things, yeah. reflect that impression mm-hmm. that I had, first of all, of England. I think those songs... And he they, was an impressionistic yeah. sort of Yeah. yeah. They split artist. people, don't they? It's not you either love them or, or, you, or you hate them, but some of those famous tracks on those solo albums, they, they are rather overblown, they're very melodramatic. Mm. I think the best of them are, are rather extraordinary, but hugely orchestrated. You yeah, know, that, that was one of Raymond that, and, and you either kind of... Johnny France. Yeah, yeah Johnny yeah, France, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. I think there's, there's amazing I think work in that. there, they, you know. I think they... That came from that era of the Phil Spector. Yes, thing, absolutely. Completely. They were trying to. It's kind of Phil oh, Spector meets sort of Goddard and, and yeah, Ingmar yeah. Bergman. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, he wrote a song after seeing the Seventh Seal about that film. Yeah. You know. So anyway, remarkable oh, no, guy. There's actually, there's one anecdote I'd love you to ask. And Keith, I think you were interviewing him at like Scotch or St James's or somewhere, and a jukebox was playing a certain oh, song. God. <laughs> it wasn't anything as exalted as that in the way. It was an after-hours drinking club in Charing Cross Road run by, this is the 1965-66, run by Ronnie Knight, who was a kind of local villain in yeah. London at the time, and his wife, Barbara Windsor. Yes, yes. Mm. I went up there to do an interview with Scott, and we sat next to a jukebox, which was playing Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco, over and over and over again. They had it on repeat. And after about the fifth time, Scott said to me, Keith, can you do anything about that jukebox? It's really getting into my head, man. I mean, you know, I keep hearing it again. <laughs> I said, well, you know, it's on repeat, Scott. I don't really think I should, can interfere. He said, well, can't you pull the plug out the back? You're sitting next to the jukebox. You know, so I, I'll try. So I snake my arm up behind the jukebox, and another arm comes the other way, covers my hand with a, like, hand like the size of a saucepan lid <laughs> and all I can see is this eye looking at me saying I don't think my brother would like that, that's his favourite record I said, Scott, I think you're going to have to learn to love it <laughs> and when about five minutes later this group all got up and left the club Ronnie Knight came over to me and said, do you know who you just had a slight altercation mm. with I said, no, no idea, he said, that was Ronnie Cray <laughs> I didn't know who Ronnie Cray was, but didn't six you? months later I did, but <laughs> all the news got into the papers. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. Amazing. That, that was an early that's, meeting with Ronnie. That's Some what Swinging country. London was all about. <laughs> Scott Walker meets Ronnie Cray. And, and you, are the, you are the link. They did nail your head to the floor, but they was always fair about it. <laughs> well, let's talk about your, your 60s specifically at, at the NMA, <laughs> the New Musical Express as it was then. I mean, you were, in a sense, like the original hip young gunslinger on the NMA, one of the first young writers who were writing in a kind of hip way about this new wave of, of bands. I don't like know if I was ever really hip. I mean, I kind of tried to introduce something to the NME called humour, <laughs> which wasn't actually allowed before I got there. Right. <laughs> thankfully, some of the hierarchy found my stuff quite funny and allowed me to kind of continue with it. So I was allowed to write in a kind of eye manner. Yes, about yes, my, yes. Oh, you, you, that, was, that was quite radical for uh, the time. It was at that time, you know, yeah. It's absolutely fantastic. I mean, you, you do put yourself in the story in a way that hardly anyone certainly did back then. 
frequently very amusingly. I mean, mm, I was like, this is one, you know, one of your <clears throat> many interviews with the Rolling Stones. Mick's talking about how he's just making a film performance and he, I get to make love to Anita Pallenberg and keeps <laughs> in the room. And, you, you know... It was actually outside his car, but close. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, there's one... You did interview Cream. This is really smart. Uh, is, <laughs> is that you let the people who know know in what you wrote that the band had trot off their tits on acid... It could have been the heading might have given it away. The eyeballs in the sky. That might have been a slight hint that something was going wrong with Ginger Baker's face. I mean, you talk about him running up and down, was it Parliament, Primrose Hill or something like that? And, yeah. and, and, and it's just the funniest thing because at no point in the piece do you say they're on drugs. No. But anyone who knows about being on drugs... Knows precisely what the behaviour merits. Exactly. It's great. I think what, what's clear from knowing you, Keith, and from reading your stuff back then, is that people liked you and trusted you, and you were able to befriend musicians, in, including some of the most famous musicians that we could ever talk about. You had a relationship with them that perhaps one couldn't have today as a journalist. I think the reason for that was twofold. I mean, first of all, I was very careful about who I picked. I mean, I picked the people who I thought were the most interesting, who often had a reputation for being difficult, like Keith Richard and Mick and Ray Davis and Pete Townsend. I went for those kind of bands because I knew they'd be more interesting to talk to. Yeah. And I liked what they were doing anyway. Jimi Hendrix, who's my absolute, I think... He quite likes Jimi Hendrix. I quite like Jimi Hendrix. I quite like Jimi Hendrix. Well, tell our listeners about how you encouraged him to set his guitar on fire. Oh, Oh, the on fire story. (laughs) Well, I mean, I was backstage with with them at the Finsbury Park Astoria... And uh, we were sitting in the room, and Chas Chandler, who was the manager, said to me, Keith, you're a journalist. That's my Newcastle accent. <laughs> It'll do. It's, it's not easy. You're a journalist. Can you come up with something where we can steal all the headlines? <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't know, Chas, you can't keep on smashing stuff up. People are just going to think you're imitating the Who, and yeah. if you smash up a TV, they're going to think you're imitating the Move. It's a pity you can't set fire to the guitar. And I don't know what made me say it. Maybe something in the back of my mind about Jerry Lewis once setting fire to his piano or something. Anyway, I I knew that you couldn't set fire to a state body guitar. It just wasn't going to burn. But Chaz then said... There was a sort of pregnant silence. And then Chaz said to Tony Garland, who was his assistant, Judy... Go out and be some lighter fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Tony went out and bought some lighter fuel. And that's what they did, of course. They spread the lighter fuel yeah, over uh-huh. the face of the guitar on stage, where Jimmy sat for some minutes with a box of matches trying to get it in the light. <laughs> and eventually it went up like a bonfire. And he started whirling it around his head like an Olympic torch, which went down very badly with the security officer at the side of the stage. Who then said to him afterwards, I can't understand... Jimmy, you know, I understand what you were doing with the guitar, but what made you whirl it round your head like that? And Jimmy said, I was trying to put it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the bathos of it. Oh. The guy, the, the, ironically, the man who actually was his agent at that time was a man who rejoiced in the name of Tito Burns. Oh, yes. Oh, the legendary. Jimmy loved because, apart from anything else, Tito's early career consisted of playing an organ with a monkey. And collecting monkeys, <laughs> the busker. It's the and best monkey, place to start. The monkey used to collect them, and Jimmy loved that story. But Tito entered into the spirit of the occasion of the burning guitar 
by hiding it under his raincoat and then coming backstage with the security officer and pretending to tear Jimmy off a strip. Oh. But he smuggled the guitar out of the oh, building so they couldn't find it. Fantastic. He was going to get banned from yeah. all the other theatres. Because, you know, for a long time, the assumption was that Monterey... And you were at Monterey with Jimmy, oh, weren't you? I was at Monterey, yeah. Uh, that was, th- th- that was where he... trip fl- to America. The first did right. it, yeah. Flew out with Jimmy, came back with a who. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Straight. <laughs> they paid for my trip. Fantastic. One, Jimmy paid for it one way Fantastic. and the who paid it in the other. Townsend got very upset backstage because he thought I was spending too much time with Jimmy. <laughs> mm. Ooh, I hope we're going to get jealousy. fair shares in this, Keith, when you get back. <laughs> Oh, I'm doing my best, Pete, you know. I was doing my best. It's worth mentioning here, of course, that, you know, our sort of jewel in the crown in terms of our audio interviews on Rock's Back Pages really is your 1970 interview with Jimmy, which we've had on the site for a, a good number of years now. And it is... Well, the last interview The last death. interview yeah. that, that he ever gave. And, um, you know, we're obviously indebted to you hugely for for allowing us to have that on RBP. So you knew him really for almost, well, for at least three plus, for at least three years, didn't you? Hmm. Yeah. You yeah, liked him. I liked him enormously. Yes. Yeah. He was very quietly spoken. Yeah. And, and, it's it's, it's uh, interesting that... You, was he an introvert trying to get out of an act? I mean, there was something uh, quite introverted about him, wasn't there? Yeah, he was almost the reverse of Scott Walker in some okay. ways. I mean, he was a kind of... Introvert with an extrovert struggling to get out. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 uh, uh, every time I meet someone who met him, I mean, this is a conversation I always have. Interestingly, given that towards the end, when he was on those endless tours of America, he came a bit unglued, he beat up a group in a hotel room, which, which happened. But the women I've met who knew him adored him. I mean, Nancy Lewis, who was mm. a track records mm. I took tea with Nancy about three or four years ago. Lovely lady. And, and she I, worked for Pat Mag. Yes. Like I did. Absolutely. And I said, to, you know, what was Jimmy? Oh, Jimmy was a doll. Doll. And then you've got like, Valerie Wilmer, who's a marvellous, serious photographer mm. and jazz journalist and all. She said one of the best days of her life was driving Jimmy around London in her mini, you know, yeah. in the very early days. And these are women... You know, and they they just liked him because he's, they said that he liked women. I mean, genuinely liked women. You could talk to them. Could, I think you could safely say he liked women. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't the point I was making. <laughs> I hope when you boil it down, that's what yeah. it comes down I mean, it's because we recently put up an interview with mm. that. Who's that horrible and now disgraced PR guy? Um, Max oh, Clifford. Yes. Max. And he said that he represented Jimmy for a very brief period, and he said that Jimmy was just stoned and violent the whole time. Now, he may have been at Max's so unlucky enough to be dealing with him at a particularly bad period, and certainly 69-70 were bad stretches for Jimmy, but he's the only person I've ever heard have a bad word to say about him. Mm. I don't have a bad word to I say know. about him. I say he was, he was great with me. I, yeah. was, I always had fun with him, and he was funny. Yeah. He could be good fun, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had an hilarious evening with him on go karts in Mallorca on one occasion. <laughs> I think, dri- I think, driving you, everybody off the track. I think you wrote that up as as well for the enemy. Probably, yes. Yeah, I think we've got that on, on the site somewhere. George Best was over there and <laughs> teamed up with us. There's a picture somewhere of George Best and Jimi Hendrix playing football on the beach. <laughs> that is it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We stuck him in goal in the end because he had no 
idea of playing football. <laughs> you sure do. He, he was quite a good yeah. goalkeeper. He had long arms. <laughs> I think he had played American. He played football as, yeah, played as American, an American football, American hadn't football, he? Yeah. You could catch we, were, a ball. we were actually talking about you. I'm just remembering we were talking about you last week because we had Tony Stewart in and we were talking oh, about Tony. his Van Morrison. Oh, God. <laughs> and I think I said, you know, uh, it, it's interesting that Keith Altham has uh, more than a cameo role in this piece. We featured very, very heavily in, in the piece that and the whole funny. drama of Tony interviewing God, Van Morrison band, in a particularly yeah. belligerent mood. What I meant to say was that you obviously went into PR. How long was I PR? How long we, when did you first go in? How long you were, were you in PR? About 72 right. through to about 1989. How long did you do PR for, say, Van Morrison? As long as you about could three, stand three, it. Three months. Seemed like about three years. Again, instantly, we got an interview with them the yeah. very early days. Yeah. And even then, he was being a difficult, unpleasant man. I mean, you're, obviously, you interview your tether with interviewing mm. these people. He was, remember, he was com- confrontational. He yeah. measured people by how you reacted to his confrontation. Yeah. I realised that quite quickly, actually, and I, I kind of dealt with it. He knew what he was doing. He just wanted to see how far he could push you, how far you could be pushed. Mm. And then he measured your worth by that. Yeah. Yes. And I think that was a part of the, the thing. With him. Sure. I mean, Tony's interview was a classic. I mean, I, <laughs> I, we went out to Ireland, and it was his first trip to Ireland since he left, you know, and gone to America to live for about three years. And we got to Dublin, I think it was. No, Belfast. He's returned to Belfast. Mm. And there was a heckler in the crowd. And I think I didn't think he'd be in the mood to do an interview. And I said to Tony afterwards, well, it might not be a good time to do this, Tony, because I think, you know, he had a bad time with that heckler. He said, that's fine. He said, I, Tony said, I, I'll just do a review. You know, I love the concert. It was a great concert. I said, fine. So we go back to the hotel. And Van comes down late into the bar area. We were all sitting around having a dr- late-night drink. Calls me over to his table and says, where's that guy who wants to do an interview with me? I said, he's down there. It's Tony Stewart. He said, get him up here. I want to do the interview. I said, you want to do the interview? He said, yeah, I want to film it. I said, you want to film it? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'll have to ask him. I can't just let him into a kind of situation where he's not unaware of what he's actually doing. So I said, Tony, good news is he wants to do the interview. Bad news is he wants to film it. Is, it, is he trying to set me up? I said, I don't think so. I mean, he's just being Van Morrison. You know. <laughs> so he said, well, if you come with me, I'll do it. So I went with him up to the suite. And I sat on a bed with a guy with a camera. And uh, Tony's first question was something like, well, Van, when you wrote Being yeah. the Fleece, were you aware of the implications that they were with your... Child, and suddenly Morrison leaps and says, I'm not answering personal questions. <laughs> <laughs> Tony said, well, no, that wasn't really a personal question, Van. That was really a question about your music. I yeah. Look, I want you to understand something. Right? I have nothing against you personally, but there is a man back in London who is selling his paper on my name that you work for. So Tony said, well, what, why were we doing this interview for then? Mm. And Morrison says... Because if there's one person out there who reads this and understands what it is I'm trying to say, it has been worthwhile doing it. So Tony said, well, what are you trying to say? <laughs> so Van said, I don't like doing interviews. <laughs> Fantastic. And it went round and round like Fantastic. that in a circle for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in yeah, the end, he got it. a really good, eccentric interview out of it. Yeah, yeah it, was it, was a ext- it was an extraordinary piece. Um, <laughs> 
I suppose we ought to move on, really, haven't we? I think so. Yeah. Thank you so much for those reminiscences. Great, it's, it's uh, brilliant. Keith. As brilliant I say, stuff. please stick around. We're going to talk a little bit now about, as I said earlier, I thought possibly Martin Fry of ABC was someone who would, at the very least, he probably would have listened to Julian Cope's comp- uh, Julian Cope compilation, which which was the introduction to Scott Walker uh, for say, a generation. I'd say Martin Fry would have been old enough to have had. Yeah. In a Walker Brothers fan the first that, time round, actually. That's, that's quite possible. You, you know, I'm certainly because. It was I, such a talent. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. No matter yeah. how awkward he was. Yeah. I mean, that so was this is from point. 1985, isn't it, Mark? Yeah. Tell us a bit about well, this audience. Well, it, it's. Uh, curiously enough, I mean, their albums after the Trevor Horn produced Let's Kind of Love were less and less successful. But they actually had their, the nearest they had to an American hit in 1985. So they're still quite optimistic about their career, which is, in fact, in reality, going straight down the toilet at the time. It's pretty interesting. We'll listen to an excerpt now where, in fact, indeed, where they, they, they talk precisely about working with Trevor Horn. Let's but we do that. Speaking of producers, have you stayed in touch with Trevor Horn at all? Yeah. Well, we, well, we use his studio a lot, which is just down the road. Some somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. He popped his head around the door and we were put mixing um, Zillionaire. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Trevor's always got an opinion <laughs> about, about something. I assume that once he's produced the band and then they go on to produce themselves, that, that his opinion undoubtedly remains what he thought of the group at the time that he produced it. No, no, no he's still very sensitive. That's what I mean. You know, yeah. it's like, he said he was right and everything you've done since has been just a botch. Well, Trevor's talent No, no, is, no, to be fair, he doesn't. Is, he's... he's no, he didn't say that. To He's us. a sort of he guy. You could lock him in a room on his own with a load of musical machines, and he could come out something that sounded brilliant. Mm-hmm. Lock him he in a room. He doesn't need stim- a catalyzer. With fresh he air. Stimulus. Right. Yeah. With fresh need, air. You know, Mickey, most of the eighties. That's it. Yeah. And if um, somebody belched, an artist came in and belched, he would be able to turn it into a twelve-inch mix. <laughs> By some, by, by hook or by that, right. that blinkered vision means he's unable to accept anything else. Means so he's not really interested in the artist. Uh, no, I no, don't no. think that's fair no. to say that. When he's working with an artist, he's interested in getting... Embellishing that. Yeah, the best that But artist. he doesn't need them. Creating a vehicle for that artist. You know, it's a pretty interesting interview. They talk about the process of songwriting extensively, had the dislike of touring, about the music press. We'll listen to another clip later on in the mm. show. Yes. Lexicon of Love, of course, had been a massive album. Big hit singles, The Look of Love, Tears Are Not Enough, Poison Arrow. I remember buying Poison Arrow and thinking it was a pretty great pop record. I did love Trevor Horn's productions. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, sort of after that, Huge success that they had, well, specifically here in the UK, when they really were, I would say, for like a year or so, they were one of the biggest pop acts in, in yeah. Britain. With Martin Fry with the gold jacket. They came out of post-punk. Mark White had been in Vice Versa, yeah. which was a, a Sheffield band. So they're very much in that kind of indie post-punk thing. But as with so much that happened yeah. in the 80s, they decided to celebrate mm. this idea of glamour and success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the gold, the Elvis-style gold jacket was a very telling kind of symbol of, you know, here we are, we're not a, a post-punk band anymore, Trevor Horn's producing us, we're having huge hits. And then the second album was an absolute turkey. Trevor Horn may have had something to do with it, but he didn't he produce didn't, it. He didn't produce it. He didn't produce it. Gary Langan produced it. And it well, actually, just they, actually they produced it. Gary Langan was the engineer. engineer. 
did it. Extraordinary bunch of bands came out of Sheffield at the same time. Yep. And I think they're the least interesting of the three. Human League and Heaven 17. Heaven 17 more as producers than as artists. They did that actually really rather brilliant Tina Turner comeback record. I mean, you know, she turned into a boring heavy metal goddess after that. But, but that, you know, that was really good. And, and Human League, I thought, were fabulous. And ABC, you know, I know what you mean. I thought those singles are pretty good, but I can't say they ever registered with me much. I always sort of felt a little bit that Martin was... He was more of a kind of bedroom theoretician of pop. He was someone who would have been probably a very good pop journalist and everything felt a little bit mm. manufactured and a little bit sort of inauthentic yeah. I just emotionally it just felt very stylized. Yeah. they're talking about this album How to Be a Zillionaire which is sort of terrible really I mean I listened to it again <laughs> Keith LeBanc they try to give it a kind of spurious yeah, yeah. modern kind of mid 80s kind of edge with, with Keith LeBanc yeah, yeah. programming drum machines and stuff on it but it just sort of ultimately it just feels sort of hollow and posturing mm. it has no real heart and ABC is still they're yeah. still kind of going it's mainly Martin Fry but that's just another conversation for another yeah. time but the way bands just won't go away anymore. You know, people just keep coming back and coming back. And well, there was this whole 80s Rewind tour that went on for yeah, years, yeah, and Mar yeah. Martin was very much yeah. one of the leading lights of yeah. that. And you, you, you see him pictures of him on stage with sort of singing with Tony Hadley, and you oh, think, God. hang on a minute, surely ABC <laughs> were supposed to be a lot cooler than Spandau yeah. Ballet, but here you are, essentially happy to take yeah. the kind of nostalgia shilling, you know. One can't begrudge people that, but... I went to Australia with Spandau Ballet. Did you? Yeah, I remember Tony Hadley changing his baby's nappy in the middle of a roundabout in the middle of the road. It's not quite like going to exciting. San Francisco with Jimi Hendrix and flying back with The Who, is it? <laughs> it was different. Sorry, with all due respect to, to Gary and the boys. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, He saw Tony Hadley change... Changing a nappy. Well, the, that's, that sums it up, really, doesn't it? It was stopping, the kind the of rock and stopping rock. in traffic. <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant. Were you doing PR for that? Yeah. Yeah, OK. So there we go. At ABC, we'll hear a bit more of Martin and Mark White at the end yeah. of the podcast. So this is your opportunity, Mark, to tell us all about new, new pieces on RBP. First bits, Rave 1965, Dawn James interview with Mick Jagger. Dawn James, I think, is an exemplary interviewer. I tell our listeners this pretty much week, every week. Pretty yes. much every week. And she always gets good stuff out of the guys. She's been, this Mick says things like, the girls behind blokes like me know there will be other girls somewhere, somehow, after a show at a party in the crowd at the theatre. Well, you know, <laughs> what can you say? But, <laughs> but yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> Did you know Dawn? Yeah. Yeah. There were three, Penny Valentine, yep. Dawn James and Irene Dunsford, who was Scott Walker's girlfriend, right. long-time girlfriend, all used to knock around together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there were the three very attractive blondes yeah. that were always on the scene. She's going to be coming in to take your place as guest in the podcast quite soon. Cause, Dawn is? Yeah, well, her oh, sister, okay. Twinkle, they're reissuing oh, a really? bunch of Twinkle material and she's helping put, put, yeah, putting the package together and so we're going to come and talk about that and other stuff. Oh, fantastic. Uh, Give her my love. She was, I uh, liked her a lot. Absolutely. I, I think she's a really terrific interviewer. She had this ability to actually get people. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but she interviewed Eric Clapton just after he'd left the Yardbirds. It was in the process of joining John Mayer. And she gets how depressed he is. You know, which he clearly, uh, all of the history subsequently shows you that 
that he was. She was know. very seductive. I mean that in the <laughs> nicest possible way. I think you know, I watched her. Is there a non-nice come. way? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, she was seductive in her interview yeah. technique. Yeah. I mean, what was all good is, is then she lets people hang themselves. Like, yes. We got an interview with Peter exactly. Frampton where he just comes out, he just comes up such an arse, it's just not true. And she you managed to do that, dr- Peter. <laughs> said, his, said his PR. I did the <laughs> PR for him in Humble Pie. Right, right, right. Oh. Next piece, 1971, very rare interview with Aaron Briggs by Jerry Gilbert. Anne Briggs is a really interesting character, a folk musician. Initially, is an entirely unaccompanied singer. That was her, her shtick, was just singing unaccompanied. But people like Bert Yanch and so on loved her. She was important without really doing much. She only made a real tiny handful of records. Yeah. And she comes out with extraordinary... Um, apparently, she's a real wild child. She'd just, like, disappear off. She'd be booked to a show. She'd just never turn up. She'd, like, fulfil five bookings in a year. You know, she's just very peculiar. She's I do. Th- I think she's one of the great kind of enigmas of folk, yeah. isn't she? She was. She was rather beautiful. Everyone was sort of in in love in a with her. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she she absolutely sort of refused mm. the acclaim that was being offered her. She wanted no part still of does. it. Still does. I was just and reading. Still lives was, in the Shetlands. Well, I think. Yeah, I was just reading a um, uh, Alex Petridis interview with yeah. her in the Guardian from uh, just a few years back. And she just doesn't know why anyone wants to listen to her records anymore. You know, I don't care. Why should anyone else care? Mm. She says this in this interview, she says, me and my music are just zooming down a whirlpool to complete annihilation. And I've just got to cope with that at the moment. And later on she says, there's this great battle between me and my music and the world, and I've got a constant struggle to keep in control. Mm. I mean, you get the feeling that she's on the edge of a breakdown of some sort of description, which is... Almost certainly true. There's actually an interview in the last Mojo or Uncut with Anne, and she, they managed to, someone managed to persuade her to come all the way to London for, I think it was the anniversary of Cecil Sharp House, right. the great sort of, you know, folk. Yeah, uh, import, Yes, that, the house in, in Camden. So she'd come down for that, and she does this interview in Kew Gardens, and she's still, all these years later, you know, how many decades after she left Nottingham and first came to London, she's still the same, quite very introverted and sort of non-compliant and quite prickly mm-hmm. This legendary figure being yeah. interviewed at Kew Gardens, it's extraordinary. Moving on to the following year, June 72, it's actually our earliest on the site uh, review of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, David Bowie, of course, by James Johnson for the NME. The very last paragraph says, Of course, there's nothing Bowie would like more than to be a glittery superstar, and it could still come to pass. <laughs> by now, everybody ought to know he's tremendous, and this latest chunk of fantasy can only enhance his reputation further. That's interesting, really, in a way that when the album came out, I mean, Bowie was a character on the scene, and we kind of he'd had one big hit, Space Oddity. Space Oddity. But no one knew what this album was going to do, and this album absolutely blew him to the stratosphere without a shadow of a doubt. It was his massive major breakthrough. Absolutely, it's where it sort of all came together. I remember hearing that album for the first time and yeah. thinking, do you know what? It's it's pretty brilliant from start to finish, you know, from, from five years to rock and roll suicide. And the sound is so good. Oh. Moving on to 86, My Bloody Valentine, the Clarendon London re- live review by Helen Fitzgerald. This is possibly the very first thing ever written about 
my blood, bloody Valentine. One of their earliest gigs. I'm yeah, sure. certainly. And they still had a lead singer called Dave, who had long gone. And she says, last paragraph, my bloody Valentine were a revelation. Go and see them while they're still on this metamorphic road to a place they can call their own. Here is untainted enthusiasm for past, present and future. Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty good. I should note that Keith has, has just got up to pick out a copy of <laughs> Flip, Flip magazine no, from not... 90... Is there a date on there, Keith? Just, well, it doesn't say what year it is, but oh, I'm guessing it's 60 something. You wrote for that, didn't did you? I was. I was you're looking for your bible in Flip the yeah. United Nations Kingdom, London, England. That, 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 that's right. I think there might Short be a conversation my about time that later. Before I joined. <laughs> Die. So, m- moving on. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> you found yourself. British, oh, your British beat column. Keith Alton reports <laughs> on the kinks. Oh, I, thought, I thought it said the name of our mayor for a second. I think uh, I Sajid re- Khan, whoever that is. Uh, mayor of London. Uh, mayor of London. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Anyway, this is a report for Americans about what's going on what yeah. in swinging London. John Mellencamp, 1991, Richard Cromer in the LA Times. He comes over as quite an engaging guy. He's very right on politically. He says, I am a rock cliché. I have fallen to every cliché a rock guy's supposed to. I do have a Porsche. My girlfriend is a model. It turns out that he sounds really depressed in this interview, and it turns out he collapsed the next day in, on a TV show in Seattle. And lastly, really, is Simon Price's interview with Salt and Pepper from 1997. Hey, yeah, I want to shoot, baby, shoot. I love salt and pepper, and, and I really love Simon... On, on all savoury dishes? On all savoury dishes. <laughs> and I love Simon Price's writing, it's a very good combination. He likes them too. They're very interesting. They, they can basically say that they've been kind of written out of hip-hop history whilst being one of the biggest hip-hop acts in the history of the medium, but their gender has resulted in not being taken seriously. Yes. So, that, yeah, that's pretty much my bunch for the... Well, terrific. <laughs> Thank you. Did you know Mike Nesmith of the Monkey's father invented Tipex? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. Don't try and get one up on us there, Alton. We knew that, and we've known that for years. <laughs> A couple of things I just wanted to remark on. It amused me enormously, Mark, when you told me you were proofreading a piece by John Savage on a country singer named T. Graham Brown. Yes! For the Observer, and I just thought... That is almost impossible no, that he, Savage uh, would be writing about a country Barney singer. literally distrusted this, assumed they'd swap bylines. There must have something. been a mistake, because it does happen. And so I sent... Actually, so this is by way of saying John actually will be our guest next week. John Savage is coming in to the podcast to talk about his new Joy Division book, and we're really looking forward to that. And I will ask him a bit more about T. Graham Brown. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I shot off an email to him and said, what on earth is this all about? And he said, he said uh, yes, I had a no interest, whatever, in T. Graham Brown. I just needed a free flight to Los Angeles. Because he's quite reasonable to me. I found it sounded very reasonable. Thing with Brinsley Schwartz once. He, he wanted to go interview <laughs> Steve The Jones. legendary Fillmore. The legendary Fillmore. Oh, you were on the plane. I was there. <laughs> we arrived just in time to see the band going off stage going, thank you for being a wonderful audience. <laughs> It's legendary. Largely due to the fact we'd spent three hours at Shannon Airport oh, waiting, waiting to find out whether it was our hydraulic... You literally really, didn't really even get, get there on the time runway. for the gig. No. No, that's oh, right. That's we arrived right. three hours no, late. That's right. Good to see you. And half the people 
the press who arrived were drunk as lords by the time they arrived. I'm not surprised, frankly. <laughs> yes. I mean, I didn't get back on it. I wouldn't get back on it. I flew out to LA. I was yeah, getting yeah. back on that plane. Was that fame pushers for the people promoting... The, just before we came into New York on the plane, it was a Stratocruiser, and they had, like, about three propellers each yeah, side yeah, of each yeah. wing. One of the props went, smoke belched out of it, and flame came out of the thing. <laughs> So another one went the other side, and the pilot came on to the intercom and said, you may have noticed we've just feathered another prop. That's so we can land on an even keel, oh you know, not, don't, don't worry about it, sort of thing. <laughs> and then he made the mistake of thinking he'd come out from the pilot's cabin and calm everybody down that might be nervous about the landing and everything. He looked like John Wayne. He got a baseball hat on the wrong way around, chewing a bit of gum. <laughs> and the guy next to me, who was the bass player with some band or other, thought he'd endear himself to him and said, and what happens if another propeller goes? And this guy, chewing a bit of gum, said, in that case, sir, we will go down like a fucking wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Which cheered everybody up immensely. <laughs> Just, uh, Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> um, since, since you're here and the nature of our game is music journalism, there are a couple of pieces I just wanted to mention. There's, so two of the great... British writers that we've lost over the last 10 years, Stephen Wells and Mick Farron. We've included a roundup of tributes to Stephen Wells, occasionally known as Seething Wells yeah. as a poet. So 2009, Stephen died 10 years ago. And so there are tributes from the Quietus website by John Doran, David Stubbs, Andrew Muller. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, they're just incredibly yeah. vivid, it's, it's, fond stories. I mean, Stephen Wells, I suspect there's not a single record in my collection that he would have his, his and vice versa, but I could read him all day. He was just a really? fabulous writer, just right. very funny. Great, great outrageous, writer. outrageous was he freelance stylist. Or was he, who was he writing? Yeah, freelance for Enemy. So he was enemy. always, yeah. I mean, I, I knew Stephen pretty well when he started writing for the Enemy. Under the name Susan we Williams. Him. Susan Williams was who he was originally. We adored him, yeah. And because as as sort of outrageously confrontational as he could be, he had a heart of gold, and yeah. you couldn't dislike him even when he was ranting and yeah. raving. Yeah, he was a very politicised writer, but as funny as any oh, as any writer has so ever funny. been in music yeah. so it's worth reading those and I mean Farron also a giant really in, in my view tremendous writer incredibly important counter-cultural figure so Mick was you know, not only the lead singer of the Deviants who were this kind of I almost proto-punk hippie I, band I, I saw, the, saw, the, I saw the Deviants supporting Soft Machine yeah. Free Concert at Park in 1969 a Hells Angels chick danced topless on the stage with them I was 13 I found this very impressive indeed and uh, they, you they sold were, your soul to Ross and Roll, on, on, on the, the spot, basis of on that the show. Start in the yeah. cultural evening. Yeah, it was absolutely. And then Robert Wyatt swore and said "fuck" into the microphone, <gasps> like um, you do in the podcast, like I do in the podcast. Well, now you've done but this, but this was 1969, before these things were allowed. <laughs> um, and uh, that was a fantastic day. I was a melody maker reader until about 1973, and then I came back to London and everyone was reading The Enemy, and I kind of opened it one day, and it was Mick Farron's 
byline, and, and I'd been reading him in the National Times for a long time, so that was the thing that got me into the NME. Mick sort of followed Nick Kent, Charlie Murray into, right. the, into the NME, yeah. and, and, and was as important a writer on the NME in the 70s as anybody, yeah. I think. And he, so, you know, I, I was astonished to realise that Mick had died s- nearly six years ago. Yeah, yeah. Just on, on stage. stage. Essentially on, on stage, stage, playing at the, the borderline. Yeah, that's right. Um, and had a heart attack and was taken Killed off the stage. Out. This piece from 2013 is Charlie Murray, in fact, reminiscing about Mick as, as a writer and as a friend. Mm-hmm. And it's really worth reading. It remains for both Mark and I to thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. For coming in, Keith. It's always lovely to see you and to get your really personal reminiscences mainly about about Scott just one quickie postscript on Scott I've remembered he told me a story once I only just remembered this this morning I did an interview with him it cropped up in a few other interviews he wore a key on his belt for some years I think we've got a picture of him here on the home page with a a key well I think this was on a belt Okay. it was quite a bit large naturally at some point in the interview I said to him what's the key for he said that's to open my front door and that was the end of the interview. And then he told me after the interview had been finished, it actually was the key to a cell on a retreat in the Isle of Wight, a hermitage. Mm-hmm. And he kept it. And he, he said to me, it was given to me by the, the dean, yeah. whose name was Altham. Ah. Oh, how well, interesting. What a coincidence. That's yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, anyone going to the RBP homepage... He hasn't got a key around his neck. Yeah, so, so there's a picture of Scott, but there's also, as supplied by our venerable guest, there's a picture of Keith with Scott. It's, it's actually... The caption reads, Walker, Scott, Engel and Keith. <laughs> there you are. Um, <laughs> quite right. And it's rather splendid. Uh, it's and I have hair. Yes, you do. Which is very important. <laughs> I miss my, you have I lustrous, miss my hair dreadfully. lustrous, thick hair there. Oh, and, yeah. and 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 the allegedly odd-looking Scott, Scott Walker, who just so looks used to very good-looking to me. Yes. But thanks again so much, Keith, oh, for yeah, coming in. Brilliant. Um, good fun. You know, it's it's just been a hoot. It's been really fascinating to hear about your days interviewing people like Scott Walker. And so this has been in great part a tribute to to Scott Walker. But it's been tremendous having you here. Absolutely. We're, we're going to bow Play. out, aren't we? With yeah. So basically, the lads from ABC discussing well, the music press in general, specifically talking about smash hits, which was in its pomp in 1985. I think you can safely say. So take it away, Martin Fry. Thanks. Bye. thing is about smash hits, in a curious sort of way, everybody assumed at first it was a 13-year-old girl, you know, sticks up. But a lot of people are just interested in, like, the visual side of things. It's not just 13-year-old girls that buy it. They want to see what somebody looks like at a certain moment in time and read a short amount about fairly superficial information about what, you know, what Sade is doing or what, you know, Nick Kershaw is doing or what... The Rolling Stones are doing. But I think the nice thing is, I mean, the reason it works so well is so many bands these days are so superficial that, that you know, some are. Four or five hundred words, you know, what, what kind of clothes are you wearing these days, you know? Just about covers. Well, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe they are like this. Maybe it's, it's just. Smashed it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's the way things are projected. Yeah. If you judge a book by the cover, then you judge the look by the lover. I hope you'll soon recover. That was Ivor Robbins talking to Martin Fry and Mark White of ABC in 1985, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. 
Many thanks to special guest Keith Altham, who joined hosts Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle. The podcast was produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Music